I want to read again from our text, which hasn't changed in a couple of weeks. It's still the same. Isaiah chapter 9, and starting at verse 6, and reading through verse 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, today, we're going to look at that third name that would be given to the, the son, the child that was born, the son that was given. The third name is Everlasting Father. Now, let me, uh, let me say this. If Satan can use, if Satan can erase the role of fathers in our society... He can erase our knowledge of God as our ultimate father. If Satan can distort our views on fatherhood, he can distort our view of God. And so what do you think? Is fatherhood under attack in our society today? Isn't it? I'm going to read that again. If Satan can erase the role of fathers in our society, he can erase our knowledge of God as our ultimate father. If Satan can distort our views on fatherhood, he can distort our view about who God is. I could go into story after story to, inter- to illustrate that fatherhood in Canada, indeed in North America, perhaps around the world, is under attack from a, from a dad being arrested and jailed in British Columbia for speaking out publicly against the gender transition of his daughter without parental permission. She was only 13. And he was, um, in Canada, you don't legally need parental permission. Isn't that tragic? That just doesn't make any sense. It's like, what? No parental permission needed? You can keep that a secret from parents? I don't think so. That's not, that's not right in any shape or form. He was fined $30,000 for misgendering her, for calling her what her biological, calling her by her biological sex. After four years, he's still fighting for his daughter. I mean, I, I mean from Hollywood movies and shows where they write scripts that make dads look like complete idiots. Well, sometimes we are, but that doesn't mean it has to show up on the big screen. Right? I, I mean, that is, it, it's, it, it's supposed to be funny that you make dads look like complete, complete idiots. To the government censorship laws and indoctrin, indoctrination in schools, it goes on and on, and the battle is real. I read a headline recently. It said, Unfortunate news from the top. Canada's Supreme Court rules biological ties between parents and children are an empty formula. An empty formula. You know what they're saying? They're saying biological ties, that if you have a kid, it doesn't mean anything. 
It doesn't mean that you are responsible, but it's, it's an empty formula, they said. Unbelievable. The story is from, um, it's only a year old. And it's from, in short, the story centers around a couple who had been together in Alberta and where the dad was from, but they broke up. Mom moved back to Prince Edward Island. Dad didn't know that, her ex didn't know that she was pregnant. Okay? She had the baby and raised him for seven years. Had this, uh, and so in PEI, it became clear that the boy's mother could not take care of him because she had some serious mental health issues. And so the, child, the child's uh, maternal grandmother moved from Alberta to Prince Edward Island to take care of him. And after being entrusted to her for two years, the boy's mother, still not doing very well, suddenly forbade his mother, or her mother, that's his grandmother, from ever seeing the child again. Well, then it got into court. Or actually, then the director of child services stepped in and took temporary custody of the child. Well, then they contacted the father, who didn't know that he was a father. Right? And so, uh, it was the director that notified the boy's father that, that he had a son, and so after, um, and, and this was seven years after the boy was born. At roughly the same time, William's grandmother successfully applied under Prince Edward Law to be des- designated as this boy's third parent. When the boy's mother did not seek custody of her son, a custody battle ensued between the, the father and the grandmother. And when the trial and two appeals were all over, the court gave both custody and guardianship to the grandmother. Like the headline said, an empty formula. It doesn't mean anything if, you had, if you're biologically the parent. When I want to look at this, um, this everlasting father, because the way dads are looked at in our society is the way we often look at, at God, right? And so I want to look at first mention, the, the first father mentions, actually there's a couple of them, um, the role of father, Jesus and father, and forever father. I want to look at those four things. And so the first mention, and, and, and again, I, and we wanted to define, we want to define what a father is according to the Bible. Now, God created fathers, and as a creator, he should be the one that defines what a father is. Yeah, I think so. As creator, as God, as God created us, he should be able to define who we are and what we are. The first mention of the word father is found in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, in this verse, we have what we call the family unit. That's, that's what I would call the family unit. And, and the start of a family unit is when, when a man leaves his mom and dad and starts his own family, right? That's a family unit. And that's how God designed it. And there's no reason for this other than it's how God created us, right? It, it's how we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, according to Genesis 1.28. In fact, at the beginning of that same verse, we read that God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. 
And, and, and to me, that means that, God, that this whole idea, this whole thing about putting family units together, that was God's idea, but it wasn't not only God's idea, but it received God's favor and, and, and approval and righteous instruction. So, so this is just the way God created us, and it's good. And it was good. God said after everything, he said, and it was good. And it was good. And then after it was all done, God said, it's very good. That's how God created us. And so what is a father? The simplest dictionary definition is a male parent. And that's a little too simple. What we'll find is that a father is so much more than that. The Hebrew word used... Um, it is used over 1,200 times in the Old Testament. But get this, only a dozen or so times, maybe 15 times, it is used for speaking of God as Father in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? Um, and what's even more interesting, that God as Jesus' Father was his most popular designation for, for God. His Father, Jesus. And, and so in the New Testament, it is used over and over and over again. God as Jesus' Father. When, as a matter of fact, when Jesus gave instructions on prayer, he began with, Our Father, who is in heaven. But he, but he never... But that's instructions for prayer. Jesus always said that God isn't our Father when he was speaking about who God was in relation to him. He always said, God is my Father. That's interesting, isn't it? God is my Father, Jesus said all the time. He's my Father. And it was very personal. That's quite a significant change. You would think that, you would think that if Jesus mentioned God as Father so often that maybe God wants a personal relationship with those that he created in his own image. Do you think so? God wants a personal relationship with us? The first time God is mentioned as Father in the Old Testament is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In the context, uh, Moses, just before his death, writes a song that he wants to sing to the children of Israel. You didn't know, you didn't know that Moses was a songwriter. He was an, uh, uh, an artist that way. And so he wrote this song and he wanted to sing it. And why does he want to sing this song for them? He tells them in Deuteronomy 31, 29, For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger through the work of your hands. And so Moses wrote the song because he knew that the children of Israel were going to go astray. They were going to fail. They were going to fall. They were going to do bad things. They were going to do evil things in the sight of the Lord. And so Moses wanted to write this song. And so he, so he sings this song and he starts out by lifting up God's name. He says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord. And I could see Moses like 120 years old singing this song. So he's lifting God's name up. He's proclaiming God's name. Ascribe greatness to God, he says. And then he really gets into it as to why he wanted to write the song. Do you thus deal with the Lord? 
O foolish and unwise people. Is he not your father? First time God is mentioned as father. Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. So from these a couple of verses, that is Genesis 2.24 and Deuteronomy uh, 32.6, we see what a father is. A father is the head of a family unit, number one, right? That's what we see from Genesis. And, and a father by God's design. Now, the Hebrew word means father, chief, or principal. So it's the main, kind of the main person in a family unit is the father, right? That, according to the Hebrew, the way, the way it is in Hebrew. Now, a, a father by God's design is to be the person in charge, the main person, right? By God's design. The second thing that we can see from this is a father makes sacrifices for his children. Because here it says in Deuteronomy, is he not your father who bought you? Now, that's redemption. Now, we know that, we know that God has sacrificed on our behalf. And so a father makes sacrifices for his children. This is from the Indian Express. A father is a lot of things... But essentially, he is a loving parent who will unhesitatingly go to extreme lengths for his children. Unhesitatingly. I like that word, unhesitatingly. You can't say it really fast. <laughs> You'll trip over those, that big word. And then third, a father helps their children succeed. You see, it says here that he, he is... Has he not made you and established you? You know what? A good parent will help their children succeed. They will set them off. They will let them go. But they will support them in their work and in their career, in their university, in, as they can, right? In their schooling. They will help their children succeed. And so this is, this is what a good father is. Matthew seven eleven says, as bad as you are, you know how to give good things to your children. How much more then will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Oh, our God is a good, good Father. He wants us to succeed. And so just from those three, three a couple of verses, we see those things about what a father is. Now what about the role of a father? The first thing I want to say about the role of a father is that in our broken and sin-infested world, the role of a father has been damaged and misrepresented beyond imagination. My, my, my. Some of you have experienced or are experiencing this kind of failure on the part of a father figure in your life sociologists will tell you that it's common for people to perceive that God is like the fatherly figure in their lives. If dad is caring, patient, and concerned, then children will believe God has those same characteristics. Unfortunately, the evidence reveals that the opposite holds true as well, that if a father is harsh or judgmental or uncaring or angry or absent, then People will think that God is like that. 
that God is just out there someplace. Maybe for an absent, if your dad was absent, then God is absent. He's just out there. He created everything, but he doesn't really care, right? A father has a powerful influence in deep and subtle ways, says David uh, Dolahite, a professor of family life at Brigham Young University. Even though children know intellectually that God is fair, loving, and kind, and patient, it's hard for them to relate to God at a gut level in a deep way if their father is not that way. If you know what I'm talking about from experience, I'm sorry. That was never God's intention. When God created the earth and all the living creatures, including people, he created it and said it was good and very good. As fathers, we mess up a lot. But I want you to know that God doesn't mess up. God doesn't mess up. God did not, nor does he change. We're the ones that changed when sin entered our world. And so when we look at God as Father, he is still good and perfect, and he wishes the very best for us. That's our God. We can count on him, and we can trust him. So I want to take a brief look at fatherhood, the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament. He is faithful. Our Father is faithful. He's a faithful God. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, and so I will kill your firstborn. The context of this, of course, is Moses confronting Pharaoh with God's word. God had asked um, that that the people would be let go to go and worship him in the wilderness. And Pharaoh refused. If God is calling Israel his son, then he's also considering Israel his, that, that he's their father, right? And a faithful father fights for his children, and God certainly fought for his children with those ten plagues. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, And in the wilderness there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went and you reached this place. Moses reminds the children of Israel that a faithful father is a caregiver. And when he has to, he will carry his children. And God certainly showed that. Deuteronomy 8.5, Moses compares their wilderness experience to a father who disciplines his son. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son... So the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, discipline involves instruction, reward, punishment, all with a purpose of properly raising a child that is building a certain character. It's exactly what God was doing with Israel during their wilderness journey. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects or disciplines just as a father, the son in whom he delights. A faithful father lovingly disciplines his children. 
I remember how many times did I hear my dad say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. But you know what? My dad loved me because he disciplined me. And if I did wrong, I needed discipline and I needed to be trained. That's a loving father, a faithful father. Isaiah 63, verse 16. Doubtless you are our father. You, O Lord, are our father. A redeemer from everlasting is your name. Wow. His name? That's his character. A faithful father would use anything to buy back his children when they have been taken captive. And is not what God, our Father, did for us? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is redemption. Redeemer from everlasting is your name. That's God's name. Isn't that interesting? If we look deeper into Isaiah chapter 63, we find that God is compassionate and kind, verse 7. Loving and merciful, verse 9. Supportive and em empathetic, verse 9. Grieving, grieved by wrongdoing, in verse 10. Providing rest and guidance, in verse 14. Zeal and yearning for His children. Crazy in love with His children, verse 15. I like to think that God, you know, we, we have pictures on our phones now. And, and, and you know, we, look at, look at my, this, this is my, this is my son. Look at him, look at him. This is my daughter. Parents are so proud of their kids. They can be. That's God. We're just, kind of scratching the surface as to what a faithful father is like. This is the true picture of God. He is our faithful father. Well, what about Jesus and the father? Now, what's really mind-boggling is that everything I've just said about God as father is equally true, characteristic-wise, of Jesus. After all, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 is speaking about Jesus. Right? It's speaking about Jesus. And so, this is referencing the child that would be born, the son that would be giving, and we know that this is Jesus the Messiah. In John's Gospel, Jesus uses the word Father in reference to God more than 100 times. More than 100 times in the Gospel of John. More specifically, Jesus calls God my Father. It drove the Jewish leaders crazy. They just couldn't receive that God could or would con be considered Jesus' Father. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but He sent me. And why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. That's John chapter 8. Verses 42 and 43. Consider John chapter 10. And I want to read that. Uh, John chapter 10, verses 22 to 31. John 10, 22 
Now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I have told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, what does that mean? What, is, what did the Jews think that meant? What was Jesus saying to them? What was the original question? The original question was, if you were the Messiah, if you're the Christ, that's Messiah, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And so Jesus told, didn't Jesus right there tell them plainly, my Father and I are one. What does that mean? What did the Jews think it meant? Because immediately... It says the Jews answered him saying, uh, well, actually, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Like, like the word again. Like this was a, a repeat thing. Jesus tells them and they don't like it and so they pick up stones. They want to kill him. And so what did the Jews believe that Jesus was telling them? Well, they believed that he was saying that I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Mean the, I'm God. They couldn't receive it. Why? Well, as Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 and 22 says, And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward, and they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. That's where they were. This was prophetic as to what the Jewish leaders would be like. They would be driven into darkness, and they couldn't get out. They couldn't see out of their darkness. They couldn't see the truth if it was staring them right in the face, and it was. The truth was staring them right in the face, and they could not receive it because they were in that darkness still. In John chapter 14, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. <laughs> That's verse 8. Really? Philip, what are you thinking? Actually, he knew the Old Testament teaching. No one can see God and live. Show us the Father. What was he thinking? He knew that Moses asked the same thing of God, and God said, no, no, it's not going to happen. You can't see me and live. I'll let you see my backside. I'll let my glory pass by, and I'm going to hide you in this cleft of a rock there, and you can see my backside, but you cannot see me because you will surely die. So what was Philip thinking? I don't know. And then Jesus answered him, you know, and I, you know what I think? I don't know if Philip was asking this question all by himself. I think he was asking it on behalf of all of the disciples. 
they were kind of thinking maybe the same thing. But he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm eternal. I'm God. And so here's the question. Does Jesus have the same characteristics as God the Father? Is he compassionate? Is he kind? Loving, merciful, supportive, empathetic, grieved by our wrongdoing, providing rest and guidance for us? Is Jesus zealous, crazy in love with us? You know he is. Is Jesus' name Redeemer from everlasting? In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. It's Ephesians 1.7. Redemption through his blood. And then, you know, he's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That's in Revelation. Well, let's look at forever, Father. So not only does the coming Messiah have all the characteristics of the Father, but this Messiah is also eternal. The Hebrew word here is very interesting. In Strong's, it has one word and then a bunch of other words that says by implication it means these other words, right? But I love the one word. This one word is terminus. Terminus. Do you know what terminus means? Terminus. The word means a final point in space or time. Terminus. That's what it means. He, that, that, that this is what this word forever, Father, this, this word means. This uh, everlasting, terminus. It's like uh, in, in the British meaning, it means like the end of the railway track. You get, you, that's the end. That's your destination. You can't go any further. You can't go any further than that. That's Jesus. You can't go any further than Jesus. He's your destination. Terminus, terminal. Uh, interesting, interesting. The, and, and so the word means, um, how, how do you like, I mean, that, that's a great definition for Jesus within, in, in relation to creation. He is the final point of space in space or time. He is. Jesus just is. He's the final point. We, we, now, we've looked at some of this before. When the Jewish leaders were bragging that Abraham was their father, Jesus, now Jesus disagreed with them. He said, nah. He said, uh, yeah, if Abraham was your father, um, you would be like this. You would recognize me. And, and, and so I, I, he says, I don't agree with you. Abraham, faith. A, a, if if you, Abraham was your father, you would do the works of Abraham. What were, what were the works of Abraham? Faith. He believed God, and then it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so the works of Abraham, I believe, are faith. And the Jewish leaders, they didn't have any faith at all. They were all, they were all about themselves. Jesus told them plainly that before Abraham was, I am. That's John eight fifty eight, And they picked up stones again, again, to throw at him, and which means that they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, that he was eternal, and only God is an eternal being. 
Earlier in John chapter 8, in that dialogue with the religious leaders, Jesus said, I came forth from God and I am here. That's John 8, 42. Now, there are a lot of translations, and I believe that aren't very helpful, and they simply say, I've come from God. But the, the King James and a number of other translations talk about coming forth from God. The difference between the two translations is actually huge. Jesus coming from God reads like that he was in God's presence and then he left God's presence to come to the earth. It's like an angel. Um, it would be like an angel in the presence of God and then the angel coming from God. Right? Um, but if Jesus came forth from God, it means that Jesus came from God's very essence. He came out of God. Right? And God is eternal, all-powerful, um, omniscient. And I mean, if you take something that has all power and you take it out of... Does it diminish God? No, it doesn't diminish God. Not one little bit. What about the part that you take out from God? Is that diminished? Does that have the same power, the same knowledge, the same everything, the same eternal value as God? Yes, it does. Because you can't... They're one. And so it's really interesting that I, I like that trans translation that he has come forth from God. And I'm here. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. He says the real suggestion of the declaration is not that he came from the side of God, from companionship with God, as an angel might, but that he came out of the, 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 the essential mystery of the being of God. He came right out of God. Hebrews chapter 6. I read this, chapter 6, starting in verse 19. And moving to chapter 7 and reading the first three verses there. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a, priestly, a priest continually. Now, specifically in verse 3, Melchizedek is described this way uh, to further solidify him as being a type of Christ, without father, without mother, without genealogy, with having neither beginning nor end of days, uh, nor end of life, but made 
like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, this agrees with Hebrews 7.25, where Jesus performs his priestly role forever. What does a priest do? A priest represents you to God, to the Father. That's what a priest does. Uh, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's Hebrews 7.25. So Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who is described as having no... uh, Which is eternal. He's described as being eternal, not having a father or mother. Finally, Revelation seals it when John writes what he sees and hears. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Okay, and so who is that talking about? Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. This is Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is eternal. Now, Jesus has the characteristics of a faithful father. He is terminus. The key to our eternal destination is Jesus. Only Jesus. It can only be Jesus. We can trust him to be able to deliver the eternal life he promises. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Why can Jesus give eternal life? Because he's eternal. Only Jesus. He's the only one that can do that. And so we celebrate Jesus. He brings us joy. He brings us salvation. He brings us eternity. Heavenly Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And the name, uh, this, this name, Eternal Father, like, like forever, um, that everlasting Father, wh- what, a, what a great name. And, and, and that all of these characteristics of a loving and faithful Father are in Jesus, and we celebrate him at, at Christmas. But not only at Christmas. He is our life and our passion all through the year. We just say thank you, Jesus, for being our everlasting Father. We bless you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. This benediction. Let the majesty of the Father be the light by which you stand. The compassion of the Son be the love by which you walk. The presence of the Spirit be the power by which you run. Amen. Amen.